glad you're here this morning. I'm glad to be with you. Seems like maybe we ought to start with a bit of humor this morning. I've got a little story here that I think is pertinent to our uh, lesson this morning I want to read to you. A young man approached the foreman of a logging crew and he asked for a job. That depends, replied the foreman. Let's see you cut down this tree. So the young man picked up his axe, he stepped forward, and he skillfully cut down a great tree. Impressed, the foreman exclaimed, you can start Monday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday rolled by, and Thursday afternoon, the foreman approached the young man and he said, you can pick up your paycheck on the way out today. Startled, the young man replied, I thought you paid on Friday. He says, well, normally we do, but we're letting you go today because you've fallen behind. Our daily felling charts show that you've dropped from first place on Monday to last place today. But I'm a hard worker, the young man objected. I come in early, I stay late, I work through my lunch, I work through my coffee breaks. The foreman, sensing the young man's integrity, asked him this question. Have you been sharpening your axe? No, said the young man. I've been working too hard to take time for that. What was the kid's problem? His problem was is that he wasn't preparing. He was all about the work. He was a hard worker. He came in early. He stayed late. He worked through lunch. It was work, 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 but he didn't take any time for preparation. For a lot of us, the Christian life, I think, is a lot like that as well. We spend a lot of time working, but we don't spend enough time preparing. And what we want to see from our passage this morning in Acts chapter 1 is that God has called on his people to wait. He's going to deliver a promise to them. In chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, I want you to return to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit was going to come, and Jesus wanted his disciples to go there and to wait. What we need to understand from this passage today is that God's command to wait is our invitation to prepare. Waiting as far as God is concerned, does not mean sitting around and doing nothing. It means that it is a time of preparation. Each of us as a Christ follower has a responsibility to prepare ourselves. We do that in a number of different ways. And that preparation time occurs when God has asked us to wait. Many of us have prayed for something to happen in our lives, and God usually gives one of three answers to our prayers, either yes, no, or wait. Those are the three answers we get. We need to understand that waiting is about preparing. God doesn't expect us to just sit on the sidelines and do nothing, but rather to prepare for what God is about to do. Now, most of you in here know that I'm a home builder by trade, and, and I have a lot of experience with waiting and preparing. If you know anything about home building, from the time we, by the time an idea comes to build a house, and until the time arrives when we actually start doing any construction can be a long period of time. We meet with a buyer, we develop plans, we make revisions, we talk to a bank, we set up financing, we arrange to purchase ground, we review the plans yet again. We go through a number of different steps in preparation to build this house. That is a time of waiting for that new homeowner. They don't see anything happening. They don't think anything is occurring. But in fact, the greatest part of the work is actually in the preparation. In building a house, most of the work is done in the preparation. Once you've developed the plans, hired the people, arranged the materials, acquired the tools, most of the work is done. Now it is just simply a matter of going out and assembling a building. That's the easy part. The Christian life is very similar to that. We spend an enormous amount of time waiting and spend an enormous amount of time in preparation for the things that God is going to do. 
Now, we as Americans have a tendency to want to take the reins and do the work. We want to get out there and make something happen. Waiting is not something that we're accustomed to doing and that we usually don't care for because we can't see the results in our waiting or in our preparation, can we? It's very difficult to see anything happening when we're waiting on God to do something. But God sees this preparation time as the most important time. He looks at it as the time that he is getting us into a position and into a condition where we become ready for what God wants to do. In the passage that we have before us this morning, we see the disciples returning from, from the Mount of Olivet where they had just witnessed the ascension of Jesus. And he had left them with the command to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who would soon be poured out on them. They were to go and to wait. But he also told them that they were going to be his witnesses, that from that moment on, from that point forward in time, they were going to be his witnesses. And Jesus knew what maybe the disciples didn't at that time is that they needed to be prepared. They needed to be prepared for what God was about to do through them. So we see here in our passage uh, a number of different things. We see that God's command to wait is really an invitation for us to prepare. We see that the disciples here in our passage are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the question becomes, what is it that we're waiting for? What are we preparing for? What we're waiting and preparing for is the return of Christ. God has made a number of promises throughout his word, but the single biggest promise that he has made, the one thing that we are waiting to occur is the return of Christ to take his kingdom. And in this time of waiting, while we are here waiting for that, we are to be about the work of preparation. Okay, we need to be preparing in a number of different ways. The scripture here today offers us a model of how it is that we are to prepare for what God is about to do. Now, in the passage today, we're going to see that the time they had to wait was very, sh very short, very small compared to the time that we've now been waiting. But as we said earlier, God is a God who never changes. He does not change in who he is, and he does not change in his purposes, and he does not change in his promises. And that fact, that truth is evident in our story today. So what we want to see here together is that I prepare for the promises of God by doing three things. The first one of those things is, is that I prepare by being devoted to the worship of God. Okay, so let's talk about worship here for just a moment. What is worship? Well, the definition that after sorting through this for quite some time that I can come up with is this. True worship is defined by the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. Think about that definition for just a moment. It's defined by who God is. Who is he in our lives? And where God is on our list of priorities. Is God that creator God, that sustainer God, that authority in our lives to command us to do as, as he wishes? Or is he something less? Is he a priority in our life? Is him, is his worship a priority in our life? Or does he fall somewhere down the line of another list of priorities in our life, somewhere between work, friendships, family, pleasure, fun, relaxation, and all of these other pursuits that we have in our lives? Where is God in that priority? As we're going to see in this passage today, it was the number one priority for the disciples. Jesus had just left. They had just gone through a very... if if there's no other word to describe it, exciting time for the last 40 days. Think about it. In these 40 days, they had seen their leader arrested, beaten, crucified, 
buried in a tomb, then to see him raised from the dead three days later, then to see him in a number of uh, post-resurrection appearances throughout Jerusalem. He appeared to them a number of different times. Then they had seen him come to the Mount of Olivet where he would depart and go into heaven. And two angels would come and tell him, ask them, why are you looking into the sky? The one you see leaving will return in the same way. So this had been a very exciting 40 days. And now they come to this period where Jesus says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. After all of this excitement, they were supposed to wait. After the command to go and be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Jesus says, I want you to go back and to wait. How would you have responded to that? I know I wouldn't have probably taken to that very well. I want to work. I want to get something done. God's given me a command. I want to go get it done. Let's carry it out. But that's not what he has commanded the disciples here. He says to go and to wait and to prepare, to spend time in worship, I believe, is what he's communicating here. Spend time preparing your heart for what I am about to do. The Holy Spirit will be coming soon, and you need to be prepared. He was trying to communicate a truth to them that they couldn't go out on their own and carry out the commands that Christ had given them. They were to wait and to prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit because he would be their empowerment. As we've seen the last several Sundays, the coming of the Spirit is the empowerment that is being talked about in this passage. The disciples were not going to be able to carry out their mission as witnesses on their own. They needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and they needed to engage in worship. So if that worship is about who God is and where he is in our list of priorities, let's look at some of the ways that this played out in the lives of the disciples. If you look at verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. They received the command from Christ to go and wait, and that is what they did. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. They went to a place of waiting. The passage is going to communicate to us that they returned to the upper room where they gathered together and they began to engage in a number of different things that were going to contribute to their preparation for what God was about to do. Our inclination most of the time is to work. It's not to wait. It's not to prepare. It's not to sit around. Our inclination is to get something done, to make something happen. But that's not what Christ has asked the disciples to do in this situation. God, through Christ, has asked us to do some things as well. In this time of waiting in which you and I are experiencing now, as we await Christ's return, God has commanded us to prepare for what he's going to do there as well. We do that in a number of different ways, and we see those uh, modeled here. Number one, we need to wait in obedience. God has given us a command. He has given us a promise. Now, our responsibility is to wait in obedience, to be obedient to what he has asked to do. To not try and get ahead of God, to not try and make something happen, but rather to be obedient and to wait patiently. Waiting is an act of worship because it recognizes God's priorities in our lives. We want to do things. We feel led to do things. We sense the need to do things. But waiting is something that is 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 an act of worship toward God. When God asks us to wait, we are being obedient in doing so. I, I think the best thing I can think of to kind of illustrate this, I remember a number of times uh, throughout the last several years raising kids. And, and a task or a chore or something would come up and I would ask one of the kids, I need you to go over here and, and do this thing or do that thing. And I remember most of the kids, particularly my daughter, would like to say, it's okay, I can do it by myself. And I would have to tell them, no, wait for me, let me help you. This will go a whole lot better if you let me help you. No, I can do it myself. 
And again, I would say, no, you need to wait. Let me help you. Something bad might happen. And invariably, they took the lead. They took the reins and got ahead of me. And something bad happened. I can remember one time when Katie was learning how to use the ice maker in the door of the refrigerator. She wanted to do it herself. She wanted to fill her cup with water. Okay, fill your cup with water. We're going to teach you this lesson one time. So she goes over there, sticks the cup up, pushes the button. Cup fills up full of water, fills up full of water, fills up full of water, and runs right over the top all over onto the floor. Well, what was the problem? The problem was is that she was this high, the ice maker was this high, and she couldn't see when the cup was full. If she'd waited for me to help her, to guide her, to direct her, she wouldn't have had the problem that she had. Simple illustration, but it, 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 it explains a larger truth. If we wait on God and allow him to help us, to lead us, to, rec- to direct us, we're going to have much better results as well. When we try and do things on our own and we try and get ahead of God, the results often don't go very well. We need to wait in obedience. But not only do we need to wait, we need to see that we're walking in unity with other believers. That's what we see from the disciples here in this passage. What does it say? It says here that they went back, they returned to Jerusalem, they gathered in an upper room together, and when they had entered, they went up where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Basically the 11, right? The 11 disciples had gathered together. And verse 14 says, all these with one accord, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What were they doing? They were unified in what it is that they were trying to accomplish. They followed Christ's command. They returned back to Jerusalem. They gathered in this upper room, but they didn't split up. They didn't splinter off, which would have been the natural thing for them to do. Their leader had just been crucified, right? They were returning to the same city that was ran by the leaders who had crucified their leader, The inclination, therefore, would have been for them to run, to divide, to splinter, to go home, to hide, to do all of these things. But they didn't. They returned to the place and they gathered together. And it says with one accord, they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves to prayers with one accord. It's interesting here. I think we need to see that God first unites his people before he uses his people. Unity is a very important thing with God. It's a big thing. He expects his people to be unified in purpose. Why? Well, the answer to that is because we are a reflection of who he is. If we're going to be his witnesses out there in the world, we need to be unified in our message. We need to be unified in our witness. We need to be unified in what we're communicating to a lost and broken world out there. That's what these disciples were doing. And they were doing this in response, I believe, to what Jesus had prayed for them. If you look at John chapter 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is not on your screen, but John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father about this very specific thing. He says to God the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. What is he saying there? He's saying they need to be unified in their message, unified in their witness, because that unity would indicate to the world out there that Jesus was who he said he was. One of the problems, one of the largest problems we experience in our culture today is this division in the church through all of these different denominations and subsects and all these different things. It becomes a problem when the message gets muddied. 
when we don't look like we're unified with the gospel of Christ as we go out there into the world, it, it compromises our witness. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have real disagreements over minor things, different interpretations of scriptures. But on the essentials, we have to have unity because that is the truth that we are communicating to a world out there. And unity communicates who Christ is. If you look at this in another way, today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Two teams are going to take the field later today. How much unity do you think exists on those two teams that are coming onto the field today? They've been through 16 regular season games, fighting through a battle, winning their division. They've played additional playoff games. They've won those games, and now they've made it to the big game. Do you think they'd make it very far if they weren't unified in their purpose? If they weren't unified in their message? If they weren't unified in what they were doing out there? Probably not. If you look at one of the teams playing today, it's the New England Patriots, and they are, have a quarterback by the name of Tom Brady. Go ahead, boo. I know. They have a quarterback, Tom Brady. Not a very popular guy right now. He's been into a lot of things, has, has done some things that they've accused him of that, that are not really very good. But do, is there any doubt in your mind that his team is unified behind him today? When they take that field out there, do you think they're going to be all for Tom, whatever it takes? I guarantee you they will. They'll be behind him. They'll support him all the way. They'll do everything they need to do to protect him, to advance him to do everything they need to do in order to win that game. We need to be like that as Christians. We need to be unified. We need to be on the same team. When we go out there on that field, we better be unified, and we better be willing to stand behind one another and communicate the truth about Jesus. There are so many different people who are spreading so many different untruths about Jesus, we almost have a full-time job in just combating that. Our job is to be unified so that the face that we present, the witness that we present out there in the world is one that reflects Jesus. That's what he said in the end of his passage, so that the world may know that you sent me. They will see me in them. They need unity and he prays to God the Father that they receive it. It's not something they were going to raise up in and of themselves. Most of us as people don't tend to uh, unify we tend to divide because we all have different personal uh, choices, desires, and all of those types of things. And those contribute more to division than they do to unification. Jesus prayed to God that unity would come, that he would bring that. He would unify his people so that their witness would be true and that their witness would not be compromised. So we see here that they were doing these things. They were committing these acts of worship. They were devoted to the worship of God by waiting in obedience they were walking in unity, but they were also working through prayer. Interesting. Working through prayer. Seems like a little bit of a contradiction. Most of us probably don't interpret prayer as work, but think about all the things that are accomplished through prayer. How many things are accomplished through prayer as opposed to the number of things that we accomplish on our own? Of lasting value, anyway. Not very many. Prayer is responsible for more than we ever thought about doing on our own. And that's exhibited by the disciples here. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They had all gathered together. They returned from the Mount of Olivet. They have gathered together in the upper room. They're not sitting around playing cards. They're not sitting around, you know, not doing anything. They're engaged in something. The thing they're engaged in is prayer. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a number of different reasons. Prayer is our way that we commune with God or that we communicate with God. 
It's a way that we come to know him. It's a way that we come to connect with him. It's a way that we can express our concerns, our fears, our doubts to God. It's a way that we can hear from God as he responds to our prayers. It's a way of bringing us into a closer relationship with him. How can I ever expect to have a relationship with someone that I never talk to? You can't do that. The, the disciples here in this passage were committed to this prayer time. They were working through prayer. They recognized God's authority in their lives. I think that they recognized that if this was going to happen, if this was all going to work, God was going to have to do it. I think they had looked at the circumstances and looked at the reality of what Christ had commanded them to do, to go into the world, to be his witnesses from one end of the world to the other, and probably thought, there ain't no way. God's going to have to do this. And they return to the upper room and they devote themselves to prayer, seeking his will, seeking his guidance, seeking his direction for what they were supposed to now do. Jesus said to go and wait, but they knew that something greater was coming. They knew about this promise of the Holy Spirit coming from the Father, but they wanted to know what they were supposed to do to prepare in advance, right? I don't know how it is for you guys, but at our house, Sunday night is usually a time of preparation. The weekend is coming to a, a close. It's now time to get ready for the work week that's going to begin on Monday. So we're gathering stuff together for the kids, for school, finding their backpacks. You've got to load their backpacks. Uh, I'm taking all the stuff out of my truck that I've used on the weekend and putting tools back in the truck. I'm getting ready for Monday. It's a time of preparation. That's what this time the disciples were experiencing was. It was a time of preparation. They needed to get their house in order. They needed to get things ready for what was about to happen. They weren't doing the work yet. When I take my toolbox and I load it in my truck, I've not done any work yet, but I'm preparing for it. I'm getting myself ready so that when it is time to work, I've got everything I need and I'm prepared and ready to do whatever it is that I need to do. So I prepare for the promises of God by being devoted to the worship of God, but I also prepare for those promises by being directed by the word of God. Not only am I devoted to God, but I allow myself to be directed by his word, by his Bible. That is his fullest revelation to us that we have today. It is the only way we can know what God's will and plan for our lives is. And the disciples here in this passage have allowed themselves to be directed by that. In their time of preparation, they have looked to God through prayer, but they have also opened his word to see what it is that God expected for them to do. If you look at verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Peter stood up among the brothers and he brought the word of the Lord to them. He said, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What scripture? What is he referring to? Well, if you skip down to verse 21, let's look at that. Or excuse me, not verse 21, verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Peter studying the word here has seen a connection. He has looked through the Psalms and he has seen in the, in the Psalms a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. And through the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit as he has studied the word, he sees now how that specific instance is being applied in his own time and in his own life and ministry. He sees here from this passage, may his camp become desolate, referencing Judas, 
the one who betrayed Jesus, the traitor. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. It will be vacated. It will be emptied. And as we see there, that's exactly what occurred. We all know that Judas went and hanged himself after his betrayal of Jesus. He hanged himself. He committed suicide. Suicide was something in this culture that was intolerable. Death to be by natural causes, death by murder or anything like that was all fine. But suicide was something that was seen as anathema to the Jewish culture. It was the height of shame. Uh, it, it was a terrible thing in this culture. His camp had made, become desolate. Peter saw that happen in his life. He saw that occurring through Judas. He recognized what happened with Judas as a fulfillment of Scripture. He knew that it had to come to pass. Jesus had promised that to them in Luke 24. He told them that this would happen, right? He told them that someone would betray him. They were expecting this. And Peter saw from his study of the word and his time of preparation, this being fulfilled in his very day. But not only did he see this being fulfilled, he saw that something needed to happen, that he was supposed to do something, that the disciples were supposed to do something. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One of them must become a witness with us. The scripture says to let another take his office. Peter saw that fulfillment occurring in their very place and time. He knew that they needed to take action. They needed to do something. He knew that the scripture had a command for him and the other disciples, and they allowed themselves to be directed by that. They set about now preparing for what God was about to do by fulfilling that office that had been vacated by Judas. The disciples were spending time in the Word. They were seeking out the will of God. They weren't just sitting around doing nothing. They were spending time in prayer. They were studying the Word. They were looking for the things that God was trying to communicate to them and through them and for them so that they could bring their lives into line with what God was about to do. This was something that was prepared. In the same way, let me look at it like this. If I'm going to build a house and I need to do all of these different things, I need, to, I need to frame a house, I need to wire a house, I need to sheetrock a house, I need to paint a house, I've got to assemble people to do that, don't I? Because trust, trust me, I'm not doing all that. I've got to assemble other people who can do some of that, right? That's what the, the disciples are doing here in this passage. They see a vacancy. They see that they're missing their painter or whatever, they're missing somebody. They know they're not fully prepared. They're not what God has asked them to be. They know that their number is incomplete, that they're missing someone, and they set about trying to fill in what is missing. They're preparing themselves. They're getting ready for what God is about to do. Guided by the Holy Spirit, they saw in their circumstances the fulfillment of Scripture. They saw that things were happening in their time that had been prophesied long ago and that there were things that needed to yet be accomplished. And they were there, therefore now bringing their lives into line with what Scripture had communicated needed to be done. How many of us have opened the Word and read through the pages day by day by day and have not seen the application for our own lives? Have you been there? I've been there. We spend too much time trying to get through the material and not enough time studying the word and drawing application from the word to our own lives. God is speaking to us through the words and the pages of scripture. He is communicating to us the things that we need to do. There are things that each of us need to be doing right now to prepare for the promises of God. 
But how diligent are we being about doing those things? Are we looking for application in the word? Because if we're just looking at it in the sense of trying to gain knowledge, we're wasting our time. I mean, we might be able to wow a few people with some of the facts and dates and things that we know about Scripture, but if we're not drawing application from what it's communicating and, and carrying those things out, we're not doing what God has called us to do. We're living outside of His will. James one twenty two tells us to be doers of the Word. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. If you're not doing it, you're only hearing it, you're deceiving yourself, the Scripture says. Oops. It says you're deceiving yourself if you're only listening and not doing. What's he communicating? There's no value in listening unless you're applying. We read the scripture, we take in the truths because we're seeking to apply them in our lives. When we fail to do that, we're deceiving not God. He knows what's up. We're deceiving ourselves. We're convincing ourselves that we're something that we're not. And that's not what God has called us to be. God has called us, along with the disciples in this story, to be doers of his word, a people of action. He expects us to prepare and to be ready for what it is that he is about to do. So, to prepare for the promises of God, I need to be devoted to his worship. I need to be directed by his word, but I also need to be dedicated to his will. I need to be dedicated to the will of God. Am I? God's will has been revealed in scripture. It's here on these pages for us what he wants us to do, what he expects us to do. Are we dedicated to that? Or are we pursuing the things that we find more important? That comes back to our definition of true worship. Where is God on your priority list? Is he number one? Or is he somewhere farther down the line? I think if we looked at ourselves honestly, we would find out that a lot of us are not putting God first in our lives. We're not making him our priority, and we're certainly not making his priorities our priorities. God has called us to put him first. We need to be dedicated to his will. We dedicate ourselves to his will by consecrating ourselves to him. We have to make ourselves available to him. We do that in a number of different ways. We do that through our prayer, in our relationship, in our connectedness with God. We do that through the study of his word. We do that through the confession of our sin, because we know that our sin creates a break in the fellowship that we have with God. When sin exists in my life, I can't have fellowship with God and thereby I cannot be consecrated to him and thereby I cannot be dedicated to his will. I am separated from God again and I'm in need of confession. I need to do those things. The disciples model here in this last section of the passage four ways in which we can dedicate ourselves to the will of God. I want to look at those with you here this morning. Number one, we can dedicate ourselves to the will of God by affirming his authority. God is our creator. God is our God. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, he is our authority. He commands us. He directs us. He sits on the throne. He rules and reigns. And we are to submit to his will for our lives. Verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. I always found that verse interesting. There's all this pomp and circumstance that seems to go along with the first candidate here. And they put forward two, it says, Joseph called Barsabbas, which simply means son of Seba, right? Joseph, son of Seba, also known as Justice by his Greek name. Got three names for one guy. And at the end it says, no, and Matthias. But I think we'll find it interesting who it is, the one that God chooses. Verse 24, and they prayed. They put forth two, 
and then they prayed. They affirmed God's authority in what they were doing. It's interesting to note here that this prayer was addressed to Jesus. Why do you think that is? I think as I've read through this a number of times in the past, I've always thought of this prayer as being addressed to God. But these are Jesus' disciples. These are the ones that he has handpicked. These are his men that he has chosen to carry his message to be his witnesses. This prayer is addressed to Jesus, and they're affirming his authority in their lives. The prayer was addressed to him. They prayed. They put forth these two. Why? Well, these two were the ones that met the qualifications that we read a moment ago. And so the qualification for the one who would replace Judas needed to be someone who had walked with the disciples all of the time from the time that Jesus was baptized until the time of his ascension. They needed to be a witness to all that Jesus had said, taught, and done. They needed to see it all. And oftentimes, I think we don't see the importance in that. Why is it important that they were a witness the entire time? Well, what's recorded at the baptism of Jesus? Number one, what's recorded there is that we see Jesus at at the river. He's at his baptism. We see God the Father offering his blessing of Jesus, who he is. God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We see the call of Jesus there as God ordains him who he, who he is to be. He says, this is my son, listen. And at the baptism, we also saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove. So those are some pretty important things that occurred at his baptism. Anyone who had not witnessed that would have missed some very important things in the ministry of Jesus. It was important that they saw it all. They needed to see his baptism. They needed to see God's approval of Jesus, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. They needed to be there to hear him speak and to teach and to preach the truths of the coming kingdom. They needed to witness the miracles that they would see him do to know that he was very God. They would need to see him as a man to know that he was a man because God sent Christ as a man who was fully man yet still fully God. Jesus was both. It would have been important that these men saw that and knew that truth. It would have been important for them to see the betrayal of Jesus and to see the fulfillment of the scriptures and to see the uh, crucifixion of Jesus as he died on that cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all mankind. It would be important for them to see the resurrection of Jesus, how he came back to life to know that he was in fact God, that not even death could hold him back. It would have been important for them to see the ascension as Jesus left and went into heaven and left the command that they would be his witnesses to all of the earth. So these men were fulfilling not man's qualifications, but rather God's. They move now from the objective to the subjective. They've looked at all of the men who are available, those who had walked from the time of the baptism to the time of the ascension, and they've narrowed it down to two. These two are the only two who've made it through that entire time, who had seen all of the things that Jesus had done. So they narrow it down. They say, God, these are the two. Show us now who it is that you would choose. They affirm his authority by placing those two up there, but they also acknowledge the fact that he's all-knowing. God is the one who knows. He sees the hearts of men. There's nothing that gets by God. God is not surprised in anything. God has ordained things that have happened. He is not surprised by them in any shape, manner, or form. Jesus knows the hearts of people in ways that man cannot. 
Man can only look at the outward appearance of a man, look at his actions, look at his attitudes, look at his behaviors, and make a best guess assessment. But Jesus looks at the heart. He knows what's truly going on inside of people. He looks at the heart. He knows their true condition. The disciples here are deferring to Jesus in a way, in, in a sense, honoring him and saying that you are the one who knows the truth. We've put forth the best candidates who meet these qualifications. But Jesus, it's for you to decide. You're the one who needs to make the decision. The disciples could only see their actions, but Jesus could see who they really were on the inside. So they acknowledged his omniscience, but they also asked for his direction here. They said to Jesus, show us which one of these two you have chosen. Which one have you chosen, Jesus? Because we don't know. We've done our best here to put up the two best candidates that we can find. Who is the one that you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and in this apostleship? Judas has left. He went his own way. He went to his own place. He's gone. Who, you, who do you, Jesus, want to replace him in this? Now, there's been some contentions over this passage, I think, in the past over whether or not uh, this was a biblical thing to do. Were the disciples or the apostles, were they authorized to make this selection? Should they have ever called for this selection in the first place? Many have even contended the apostle Paul should have really been the 12th disciple, that he was the fulfillment of, of Judas's vacancy. But that's not what's borne out by the passage here. The passage communicates that these men, in order to fulfill this specific role that Jesus had expected of his disciples, needed to be ones who walked with him from the time of his baptism to his ascension. The apostle Paul didn't meet that qualification. He was an apostle in another sense, but not in the same sense as the 12. The 12 disciples were to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They will in the future sit and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They, 12, the number 12 is a, is a number of order. It is a number of completeness in the Bible if you look through Scripture. This position needed to be fulfilled, and it was only going to be fulfilled in this instance by this person because he is the only one who would meet all of the qualifications. So they asked for his direction. You and I probably need to do a little better at asking God's direction in our own lives. I think oftentimes we tend to make our own plans, we tend to set our own agenda, and then we simply ask God to bless what it is that we've already decided to do, the choices that we've already made. We are looking for things, for God to do things that have come into accordance with our will and plan rather than in accordance with his will and plan. But we see here the disciples ask for the direction of God. How often are we asking for the direction of God in our prayers, in our worship time, in our study of the scriptures? Are we looking through the pages of scripture, looking for the will of God and then carrying that out? Or are we looking for evidence to support our own ideas, our own will and plans? Because God won't honor that. God honors when we seek him, when we seek his will and his plan. And here we see in the passage that Jesus renders his decision. Verse 26, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Kind of a simple conclusion to a long process. And they cast lots. They used the Old Testament method for discerning the, the will of God. If you look through the Old Testament, there are a number of instances where the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, used the casting of lots to discern the will of God. They would move through the objective material in any situation, much like the disciples did here with the two candidates. They looked at the objective. He meets the qualifications. But when it came time to move to the subjective, when the decision needed to be made, they resorted to the casting of lots. 
Simply what the casting of lots was is they would write names on stones, throw it into a jar, shake it up, and whichever stone came out first, they interpreted to be God's will in any situation. So in this sense, they would have written two names on two rocks, thrown it in a jar, shaken it up, and the first one to come out would have been God's choice. It was a very Old Testament way of doing things. But we need to remember here that the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. Today, we don't use the casting of lots. We don't use that type of thing to discern God's will because we have the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us and to lead us into the decisions that we need to make. But this is the last instance of the casting of lots that we see in the Scripture. It was the closing of the Old Testament, and the New Testament was about to begin, or the New Covenant, excuse me, was about to begin. And it's the last we see of the casting of lots. But the lot fell on Matthias. He was the one who was chosen. And the passage simply concludes and says, he was numbered with the eleven. No other pomp and circumstance, nothing like that. He was simply numbered. The apostles accepted his decision. They accepted Jesus' choice. There was no electioneering going on here. There was no complaining about the results. There was no recount. None of that kind of stuff went on. The answer was given. The, uh, the apostles abided by it. They accepted his decision. How often are you and I accepting God's decisions in our lives? I'm convinced that our problem is, is not that we don't hear God or that we don't hear him speak or we don't understand what he's telling us, but it's more likely that we simply don't like what he's telling us and we petition God to change his mind to bring him into line with what we would like to do. We don't see any of that here in this passage. The disciples are simply responding to what God has chosen and what he has, has, has commanded them to do and they're acting accordingly. That's the way in which we should be living our lives as well. But so often I think we protest, we fight, and we argue, or more likely I think we spend time delaying. We delay doing what God has called us to do because I think some of us in our hearts are hoping that God might change his mind. But Malachi 3 told us what this morning? For I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change and God's will does not change. What he has willed for our lives is final. God's choice in the matter is final. Our job is to respond to what his will is and to dedicate our lives to what his will is. God's command to wait is his invitation for us to prepare. We've seen here this morning in three points how the disciples modeled that idea. I want you to write that down if you haven't done that already. God's command to wait is our invitation to prepare. And when we're experiencing times of waiting, we need to reflect on that truth and remember that we're not to be sitting idly by. We're not to be wasting time. We're to be preparing. We're to be loading our truck with tools, whatever it takes. We need to be getting ready for what God is about to do. Very shortly in Acts chapter 2, the next passage, we'll see God's promise of the Holy Spirit did come. Ten days later, after the ascension, the Holy Spirit did come. God's promise was fulfilled and the rest is history. The disciples went out into the world and they fulfilled the great command that God had given them to be witnesses to the very ends of the world. We saw that fulfilled. God's promise of Christ's return is yet to be fulfilled in our lives, but that does not mean that we are not to be preparing for that. We are to be engaging in the same type of behaviors that the disciples were in our passage today. We are to be devoting ourselves to his worship, worshiping God. We are to be uh, dedicating ourselves to his will, we should be allowing ourselves to be directed by his words. Because why? Because Christ's return can happen at any time. It can happen in the next moment. It can happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. 
We don't know, but it can happen at any time. I think a lot of us think that there's still something yet to be done, that I've still got some time, that I can delay just a little longer. But that's not actually the truth. The Bible has communicated that, God's, that Christ's return is imminent. It can happen at any moment. Do any of us want to be found unprepared for that? What if, what if Jesus descended into this sanctuary this morning? Would you be ready? Would you be prepared? That's the question we have today. Are we prepared? Are you prepared? What do you need to do to prepare for the promises of God? What things are left to do? Is God the highest priority in your life? Are you giving him the devotion that he deserves? Are you pursuing him in worship, devoting your entire life to him, giving him your all, making him first in your life? Are you allowing his word to direct you in all that you do? Are you searching the scripture, looking for what his will for your life is, and then applying that? Or are you simply skating by? Are we dedicated to the will of God in our lives? Are we surrendered to that will? Have we discerned what God's will is for us individually, and have we surrendered to it? That's the question. Have we surrendered to his will for my life, for my family, for my work? my relationships, my friendships, my finances? Have we surrendered fully to God's will? There's a number of different things that we need to do to prepare. We're gonna talk about those in just a moment in our time of invitation. But the question I wanna leave you is, what is my next step? What do I need to do today? What do I need to do to prepare for the promises of God. Let's pray.